Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today we're going to be talking about bacterial diseases, especially bacterial diseases in corn. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is 844-44-AG-PHD if you have any agronomic question for us. Again, that's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or find us on Twitter, or X, I guess I should say, Brian Hefty, or Ag PhD Media. All right, so bacterial diseases in corn... The challenge is there's not a lot you can do. Some people will talk about spraying copper over the top. Occasionally, I'll hear about hydrogen peroxide. Never seen that work. But, I mean, the copper, sure, occasionally that can work. But the biggest thing is really variety selection. If you have better tolerance to some of these bacterial diseases, that's a good thing. So today in the show, we'll talk a little about Goss's wilt, bacterial leaf streak, and just maybe some other bacterial diseases too that may impact you on your farm in general, and especially in corn. Right now, though, let's get to the Ag PhD Mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, first question comes from the state of Mississippi, and we get questions like this from time to time because... Um, a lot of people don't like even their first name thrown out there, so I'm not going to give you his first name, but this question comes from Mississippi, and it's a question about calcium. So he says here, hi guys, I've been listening to you for about a year and a half now, and I sat through your soils webinar this spring. I have lots of notes, and I've kind of been looking at this whole calcium thing. So here, here's the story. Um, I deal primarily with uh, commercial residential stuff, spraying uh, like weeds and, uh, and doing fertility. And I also do some applications in forage and hay production. And I've really started focusing more on the health of all my soils. So anyway, what I'm after here is... I, we've been using a little bit of a 10% chelated calcium product that has other biologicals in it, and I've never heard you guys talk about applying liquid calcium, just wondering what your thoughts are. I realize this product doesn't really claim to raise pH like lime, but sometimes if I'm going by base saturation calcium, I might be at 55% or less. So can I apply this product and it would help me at least in the short term? Obviously, it's not a long-term fix, but what do you think? Okay, so I, I just say with this, yes, we have experimented with liquid calcium in the furrow. We've also put it directly on seed. If you do a real low rate with certain products, it's not really damaging to seed. And we've actually had some gains in very low calcium soils. So sure, long term, we'd like to fix the soil. That's always going to be our number one suggestion. I don't care if we're talking... It's a drainage thing. It's a nutrient thing. Whatever we have to do, long term, we'd love to fix the soil. But the challenge with that is you're going to have to spend a fair amount of money to do it in a lot of cases and put lime on, which often takes three years to break down, and the benefits may be achieved for 10 years, let's just say. Well, if you're renting the ground, it's hard to invest something, invest in something that could benefit the land owner for 10 years and might only benefit you for one or two. So this is why it's important, in our opinion, to have a good open dialogue with the landlord and say, look, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to fix the soil. This is what it costs. This is how long I think it's going to last, everything else. So maybe you get the ground long term, or the landlord pays for part of the lime if you lose the ground. 
Anyway, back to this question. Yes, um, I am all for using a little bit of liquid calcium, at least in the short term. Just try it on a small scale, see what you see, but I think that's a good idea. And if there are other biological products in there, that can be a good thing too. All right, next question. This is, this is actually the third time now we've revisited this same question from John in Minnesota, and it came in over a month ago, and I don't think we fully understood what exactly he was asking here, and I just happened to be going back through my notes over the weekend, and I'm like, you know, I get, we got to talk about this a little bit more. So anyway, he sent this question in uh, over a month ago now saying, lowering soil pH with elemental sulfur. I read some articles out there saying it doesn't work, especially in a high CCE soil. And I know one of my responses, um, the couple of times we've talked about this has been, I've never heard of CCE in a soil test. That's only for liming. Okay. Well, apparently uh, what they were really talking about was free lime in the soil or excess lime. So, for example, when we run a Midwest Lab soil test, there's a there's a box that says excess lime, and it'll be ranked high, medium, or low. So, anyway, what we're talking about here is high excess lime. And so the question is, will elemental sulfur lower pH in that case? Because apparently there are some people trying that, and it's not working. Okay. Here's what you got to understand first. Let's look at the complete soil test and see what's really going on. And, yes, if there is excess lime out there, or in this case, your high CCE, which again, I've never heard before. No one else has ever talked to me about that in all my years. But anyway, okay, high excess lime, that usually means you got a drainage problem. Let's fix the drainage first. I'll give you an example. Just a couple months ago here on the show, we talked about a farmer who sent us some soil tests, might have been last month, and he'd sent some in in the first place. And I'm like, I just don't have enough information. Send me more. So we did. And what we found is it was just a ridiculous amount of excess lime. And then we had lots of problems with excess sulfur and everything else. And so basically the summary is fix the drainage and a lot of these things go down. So for example, at our soil tests, our, our, I should say our soils clinic this last winter, we talked about a field that had gotten tiled clear back in 2013 in Minnesota. After two years, they still had just a crazy amount of calcium on the soil test. It said 13,000 parts per million, even two years after tiling, and 6,000 parts per million of sulfur. So here's my point. Whenever you're dealing with excess lime, there's excess period in the soil. Let's see what else we have. And here's my point. Will elemental sulfur lower a pH when there's excess lime out there? Can it? Absolutely. But the point is, you need to take care of the real cause of the problem first. And if the cause of the problem is drainage, um, elemental sulfur doesn't work in poorly drained fields because it turns to hydrogen sulfide, makes your soil smell like rotten eggs. We'll talk more about that right after this. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. 
Now is your chance to refuel your farm equipment for free. Register today at fuel.clos.com for your chance to win $10,000 in free farm diesel fuel. From our high-capacity harvesting equipment to our high-horsepower tractors, Kloss is known for superior performance and exceptional fuel efficiency. So go to fuel.clos.com, then check out the advanced equipment at your local Kloss dealer. That's fuel.clas.com. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. When nematode pressure mounts, Seed Applied Trunemco provides assurance. Growers using Trunemco are seeing a difference from early plant vigor to improved soybean and cotton yield. Impressive results are everywhere, and we want to hear about yours. You could win $20,000 and be named a Trunemco Elite Grower. Don't delay. Contest ends October 31st. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. See full rules. Learn more at newfarm.com USST. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. Hopefully later in the show we'll see if he joins us. Uh, he's out on the road today. Uh, we're taking your calls and questions today and also talking a little about bacterial diseases in corn. Now right before the break we were discussing John's question from Minnesota about will elemental sulfur lower soil pH if you have high excess lime. Can it? Yes. Does it always? Absolutely not. Elemental sulfur is simply a tool. And by the way, I mentioned it before the break, but you have to have great drainage. If you do not have great drainage, I will promise you elemental sulfur is not going to work. Because again, it turns to hydrogen sulfide when you don't have enough air in the soil for the bacteria to do their job converting that elemental sulfur over. So here's the thing. Elemental sulfur is simply a tool. You don't want to bring the wrong tool to the job. It's just like if you need a screwdriver and all you have is a hammer... Is the hammer going to work? Nope. They're both tools, okay? But you have to have the right one. So I'd just suggest, John, that you send in your soil test to us. We'll take a look at it and let you know what we think from there. All right, we're going to go to the phone lines right now. we got Brian calling in from Utah. Hey, Brian, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Hey, so i got a question for you, though. Yep. <clears throat> We're spraying morning glory out with Roundup today. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what I'm wondering, what we're going to do with this is um, we're spraying it with Roundup. Then we're going to just take and put 50 pounds of urea, 50 pounds of ammonium sulfate down the spinner, incorporate it with a heavy harrow, and, and then plant it. Got it. What I'm wondering is how long do we need to let that... Um, morning glory sit with roundup or before we do that yep most people are usually going to tell you two to three days so you you want to let the whatever herbicide is it, it is get in there and kill the growing point or in this case growing points and then you should be in pretty good shape 
Now, my one concern is Roundup is not the best on morning glory. There are some morning glory species that are tolerant, if not even resistant to Roundup. So I don't know that I've heard of that before in Utah, but in other areas that have a lot of morning glory, they have had some issues with that. So I'd just make sure you're not cutting the rate or anything like that because it is kind of a tougher weed for Roundup to kill. Just about all those vine-type species, um, they've always been a little bit more tolerant to Roundup than some of the other broadleaf weed species we've seen. But yeah, you just wait two or three days and it'll be fine. Now, let me ask you this. Were you asking the question because you want to go out the next day, or what was your thought? We were thinking towards the end of the week or part next week. Oh, yeah. You're, you're plenty good. Yep, no problem. Okay. All right. That's what my question was. Okay. Good luck out there, Brian. I appreciate it. Thanks. You bet. All right, let's go next down to the state of Iowa. We got Allison Robertson on with us. She is with Iowa State University as an extension plant pathologist, if I can get the words out today. Allison, how are you doing? Uh, Not too bad. I'm on the road, so um, hopefully I'm not too... You can hear me okay. Oh, yeah. Yep, we can hear you just fine. All right, so we're talking bacterial diseases in corn today. Um, I assume that Goss's wilt and bacterial leaf streak are the two main ones that you wanted to talk about, right? Yes. Yes. All right. So the Goss's wilt has been around for quite a while. The bacterial leaf streak a little bit newer. W- what are you seeing more of this year in your state? Oh, so um, funny that you, I, I'd actually forgotten I was going to be on the call with you today. But we're just driving back from southwest Iowa, and we were in a trial down there, a fungicide trial, and we had both Goss's wilt and bacterial leaf streak um, in that trial. So um, that was kind of interesting. I would, um, I would say it definitely depends on the hybrid that's being grown. So if, if you grow a hybrid that has some sort of susceptibility to Goss's wilt, um, chances are you're going to end up with Goss's wilt. Um, and, yeah, bacterial leaf streak, it kind of shows up, but compared to Goss's wilt, it's just not a very exciting disease if you're a plant pathologist. Why, why do you say it's not that exciting? Well, just because the leaves, you know, if you look at Goss's wilt, I mean, we were in a couple of plots and they just looked like someone had got a torch, right? Yep. It just burnt yep. the, the canopy out with Goss's wilt. And yet, yet with bacterial leaf streaks, you know, you can you see those long streaks on the tissue, but they don't, you know, you, the plant doesn't look like it's been torched. It's there and you can see it and it's just, it's pretty... Okay, so basically, yeah. Allison, what you're saying is as a plant pathologist, you're not excited about it, but as a farmer, I should be more excited that I have bacterial leaf streak <laughs> instead of Goss's wilt because it doesn't look so bad. How's the yield damage, though? I mean, are you seeing quite a bit of yield damage out of bacterial leaf streak, or is that also less? Yeah, no. I don't think we get the, the yield, um, the decline in yield with bacterial leaf streak like we do with um, Goss's wilt. I mean, Goss's wilt, you can lose, you know, 50, 60% of your yield. Bacterial leaf streak, I don't know if you even leave, lose 10%. Um, I haven't, yeah, I mean, it would be best to check with Tamara on that, but I can't remember hearing any huge yield decreases because of bacterial leaf streak. 
I, I just, I can't imagine it does a whole lot to yield. Now, you mentioned you were looking at a fungicide trial today, and obviously fungicide isn't yes. going to take care of bacterial diseases, but do you no. see some benefits in the plant from the fungicide? In other words, is the plant a little healthier? Maybe it tolerates the, the bacterial disease a little bit more, or does it not seem to make much difference? Well, funny you should ask, because as we were walking the trial, I always assess my trial my trials blindly, but we kept on wandering into plots where there was hardly any gosses wilt and very little bacterial leaf streak. And so I got did get the plot map out and started looking. And those were actually the check plots that had not been sprayed <laughs> with a fungicide. Great. Yeah. So so you're telling me that it may be worse when I've taken care of the fungicide, the plant's more healthy, so then the bacteria just takes over. Yes. <laughs> the, I mean, that's, so the only thing I can come up with um, is that maybe when they were spraying the um, fungicide, um, that corn that we were in was pretty tall, and I don't know if they were just damaging those top leaves. Sure. And maybe there was a storm that came in you know, soon after that fungicide was applied and there were all those wounds for the gosses world to get in. That's, you know, that's the one explanation that I can come up with. But, I mean, it was, yeah, a lot of the plots we walked into where there was no gosses world, they hadn't had a fungicide sprayed. So really interesting. Um, yeah, I'll have to go back and look at the data a little bit more closely. All right, so but, let, let me yeah. ask you this. I've had a lot of questions here lately about hydrogen peroxide and then also about foliar copper. Are you seeing any advantage at all with those types of products on either of these bacterial diseases? No. And um, back in, in uh, you know, 10 years ago when Gosses World was a, a, a problem, we did try um, applying a couple of... Um, product. I don't think we tried hydrogen peroxide, but we did try copper and it did not help. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I think it's just not systemic enough and it doesn't stick around in the plant long right. enough to protect it. So I didn't have good data from the products that I tried. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really a wish and a prayer when when you're out there with products yeah. like that because, yeah, I agree. I just haven't seen much either. Well, Allison, yeah. I want to thank you a lot for your time today. We really appreciate it, and thanks for the work that you're doing. And uh, I was happy that the cell phone connection hung out there for five minutes yeah. for us. That was great. Yeah, so, so was I. So <laughs> thanks for having me again, and good luck to everyone up coming up with Harvest. So You bet. Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, so bacterial leaf streak, Goss's wilt, two pretty tough diseases. In summary, hybrid selection is super important. And this is part of the reason why we're talking about this today, because I know there are seed dealers across the country in the United States and maybe in Canada as well talking to farmers about, hey, which variety are you going to buy this year? Um, if you're concerned about a bacterial disease, you want to have something that's got pretty good tolerance. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Get uniform control in your fields with trusted, hardworking Lucento fungicide. Control the toughest diseases with a dual-mode-of-action fungicide that consistently outperforms the competition and field trials. Lucento fungicide from FMC works overtime for lasting control to help improve crop yields. Talk about getting the job done. 
Visit your FMC retailer or lucento.ag.fmc.com for hardworking control in your fields. Always read and follow all label directions. When I step on someone's farm, I feel like I've already walked a mile in their shoes. I spin spring on the tractor and fall on the combine. I see the excitement in my kids' eyes on our farm, but worry if there's enough of it for all of them. I make sure everything Case IH makes meets the challenges farmers face, because I face them too. My name is Ryan, I am a farmer, and I work at Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Good morning and hallelujah! Watch it. My spray and pray days are over! What's with Randy? Oh, he's just amped. And Yeah, he ordered that new Battalion A herbicide from UPL. They're calling it the new gold standard. This is the greatest day in herbicidal history! So, how can I... Get amped? Just go to battalionamp.com. It's gonna be a good year! Always read and follow label directions. Effortlessly manage your farm fertility with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether it's building soil, balancing nutrition, or maintaining fertility. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Join Verify today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings. Experienced the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids. Extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio and talking bacterial diseases in corn. Next on, we have our friend Marty Chilvers. He is with Michigan State University as a plant pathologist. Hey, Marty, how are you today? Hey, Brian, I'm doing well. Out looking at some white mold in soybeans, unfortunately. Well, we're going to talk about bacterial diseases in corn, but since you were just out in a white mold plot in soybeans, is there anything in particular you're learning now or anything you've learned maybe in the last couple of years that's any new and different about this tough disease? Well, I mean, I think one of the important things is just trying to keep a record of fields. So what's happened in this situation, we had a field with a known history of white mold um, and the variety we used was a little bit too susceptible. So we got lit up pretty good. We were very dry, of course, in May and June, but we had plenty of rainfall uh, in July, and you know that promoted those white mold mushrooms to form uh, during flowering. So that that's that's the situation there, and we didn't get a fungicide on it when we probably needed to, unfortunately. Yeah, and quite frankly, we have not found that just spraying one fungicide um, 
helps a whole lot when we're talking about severe sclerotinia white mold. It's usually many steps. I think I have a list of 10 things I often tell farmers to do if they're worried about white mold. But let me ask you this. Yeah. When, you're, when you're talking about a, a field, like in mm-hmm. your area, do you often see white mold across the whole field or is it usually just areas in the field? It, it depends a little bit on the field topography. Um, what we tend to see in these flatter fields is it can certainly be, you know, widespread across the field, still patches. When we get into more uh, ground with topography, some hills to it, we tend to see it in the lower areas where that cool, moist air is settling. Yeah, we have a lot of rolling hills where we farm, and so that's that's part of the reason why I'm asking. That's what we see, and so we only spray portions yeah. of fields with yep. a, a white mold fungicide. Well, when you're talking Endura, like this year it was $45 an acre. I, I'm not a huge fan of spending 45 bucks across the whole field, and then I, if somebody says, well, you got to do it three times, yeah, yeah, that's a little much. But anyway, let's get to, right. let's get to our main topic yep. today, which was bacterial diseases in corn. So in your state of Michigan, do you have a lot of bacterial diseases in corn? And if so, which ones? We've, we've had some things pop through. And I tell you what, I think you're going to talk to Allison a little bit later on. One of the ones I think we're concerned about is bacterial leaf blight. It's a relatively more recently recognized disease. And I would almost put money down that it's here in Michigan. We just probably haven't identified it yet. It looks a lot like gray leaf spot. But instead of being confined by the leaf veins, it, it sort of bleeds across the leaf veins. So that's something that we should be out there watching for. We have had reported incursions of Goss's wilt in the past, but that doesn't seem to be a concern the last few years, which is really good. When we're irrigating from surface water, we tend to get a lot of bacterial stalk rot, so really be on the watch out for that. Uh, and then maybe Holcus leaf spot might be the other one that, that might be out there and, and just something for people to keep an eye on. Um, let's come back to the disease you mentioned, the bacterial stock rot, from surface mm-hmm. water. Why surface water rather than groundwater? Yeah, so surface water tends to have a higher bacterial load, um, and it tends to promote, you know, you're basically putting that water down through the stalk, so you, you, you know, promoting uh, any bacterial um, infection because you're putting that heavy sort of bacterial loaded water onto the plants. At least that seems to be the pattern here in Michigan. Uh, so whenever we have stock rot issues come in uh, to the diagnostic clinic, it's pretty much always because it's surface irrigated water as opposed to, to ground water. Interesting. Uh, so in terms of bacterial diseases in your state, you, so you mentioned four, uh, what, mm-hmm. is there anything a farmer can do other than pick the right variety? I mean, are you seeing any difference in, let's say, soil fertility or drainage or, I mean, just anything? Uh, no, not not really. Um, I think one of yeah again, the, the, like you said, the most important thing there is variety, uh, resistance, uh, perhaps residue management. You know, corn on corn, we're certainly going to be more likely to be at risk for a disease. Um, clean seed as well. Some of these diseases, like Goss's wilt, is um, spread uh, through seed. I think overall we do a pretty good job of that. That I've seen some instances of seed seed transmission of that disease. Um, but they're really the main things. I haven't seen anything in particular uh, with soil pipe or, or fertility programs. I, w- I would certainly be shooting for you know a well balanced fertility program, healthy plants to help help uh, fight any disease that is out there. 
So anything else that's popping up uh, this year in your state in particular, I, I mean, outside of bacterial diseases, is there anything else as a pathologist sure. that you're concerned about? Uh, not. I mean, white mold seems to be the big one uh, in soybeans and, and sticking with soybeans for a moment. There's a little bit more phytophthora uh, stem and root rot out there um, because of some of those heavy rainfall events we got You know, after a very dry May and June that really just led to conditions that were ideal in those very heavy um, soils for root rots to, to take effect and soybean sudden death syndrome. And some of those fields are just really struggling uh, to recover from that, those issues, unfortunately. Um, the tar spot front's been very quiet overall, uh, diseases in corn, a little bit of grey leaf spot, but generally pretty quiet this season, again, because of that very dry period for, for an extended couple of months there. So in terms of tar spot, have you heard any other hot spots around the United States, or is this year, let's say, less just about everywhere? Yeah. It, it, well, for most of the acres that have experienced it in the past, I think it's generally lighter. Sounds like my colleague uh, Darcy Talenko in, in northern Indiana there has some hot, hot areas. The colleague across in Ontario, Albert Tenuta, has some pretty hot, hot spots. I think they picked up moisture at the right time. Um, earlier in the season to get the disease going. I know a lot of people around here are scratching their heads. We've been wet the last two months, but we weren't wet in May and June. So things just didn't get started earlier and, you know, build through the season. So that's why we're just not seeing it here so much. The other place, uh, Rodrigo Onofre down in Kansas, he's got some pretty um, hot areas of tar spot in north uh, eastern Kansas, um, sort of a newer area there. So there's still pockets out there um, that we're hearing about. So certainly certainly something to keep an eye on if you're out in those, those particular areas. Well, I would say the last two years, tar spots, the disease we've had the most questions about. So is there anything mm -hmm. in particular that you would advise a farmer to do if he's kind of unfamiliar with tar spot? Yeah, um, we've got a great web book on the Crop Protection Network that's got a lot of information on tar spot. Um, always be talking to your seed dealer about you know, variety resistance. I think that's really important. Using the tar spotter app to look at risk during the season uh, to help make those decisions with respect to fungicide and also the scouting efforts that we do. So we really pay attention to what's going on, get reports from our industry colleagues and put those up on some maps to let you know when and where we found it. Um, at the county level. So use that information to help help plan next year's cropping season. Yeah, it's always tough because by the time you're out scouting in a field and you see a bunch of disease, you're too late to maximize yield. So it's a good idea mm -hmm. to pay attention what's going on in the general area and how things are moving. Uh, so hate to have somebody else have the problem, but if they do, I mean, you can take advantage of that and get spraying on your farm before it hits. Uh, hey, Marty, thanks exactly. a lot for the time today. We really appreciate it, as always. Uh, again, it's Marty Chilvers from Michigan State University. Thanks, Marty. Thanks, Brian. You bet. Let's go back to the phone lines again. We got Jim calling from South Dakota. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hey, Brian, how are you? Great. I'm good. I hear you got a question on alfalfa. Yeah, and are you coming out to Freeman in a week or so? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I think next Tuesday. Yep. Mm -hmm. That'd be good. I have seen you in a while. Okay. <laughs> um, got a question, Brian. I've got an old gravel pit I irrigate. And then the corners, it's really sandy. I've tried corn and beans. Okay. And uh, usually didn't get my seed money back. So I put alfalfa on it about five, six years ago. Yep. The alfalfa is getting weak. I was going to throw some, I've got some winter wheat seed left over. 
I was going to throw that on there and manure it really nicely and uh, work in the winter wheat because I think atrophy exists in alfalfa, if I recall right, where you can't plant alfalfa on it. You have to go a cycle or a year. Uh, allelopathy. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah, you want to give it a year rest usually, if not two. If not two. Okay. And I thought that winter wheat, I got leftover seed from planting out west. And I, well, sure. You know, they don't really take back 30, 40 bushels. So, I thought, yeah. Put that on there, bought a bush and a half or two an acre and manure it good. And yep. Should a guy spray that alfalfa with 240 and and then, yeah, and then and then work it in. Uh, yeah, that probably would be a good idea. I really like a high rate of Roundup instead. But Jim, hang on. We'll talk about it right after this break. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter because now, you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Your farm data platform might let you manage your fertilizer plan by helping you set sample points, determine management zones, or create fertilizer recommendations. With Verify, you can do all that. But what Verify does that no one else can is take yield data straight from your combine, correlate this info to soil test points, and immediately generate variable rate fertilizer maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether you want to build soil levels, balance your field for uniform nutrition, or maintain fertility levels by simply applying what you removed at harvest. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Sign up for your Verify account today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. That's V-R-A-F-Y.com. When it comes to protecting your field from disease and environmental stress, there's Revitech fungicide. <laughs> and there's everything else. When it comes to unparalleled power, there's Revitech and everything else. And when it comes to speed and stamina, this is Revitech. And this is everything else. Nothing else comes close to Revitech fungicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The end zone from Farm Shop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit FarmShopMFG.com for more.
Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Right before the break, we were talking with Jim from South Dakota. Here's the situation. He's got alfalfa. It's been in there for a few years. Wants to get it under control and then basically go in, do tillage, seed winter wheat. Sounds like a good idea to me. My suggestion was if it's, if it's not Roundup Ready alfalfa, I'd just go in with a high rate of Roundup. In addition to killing the alfalfa, that's going to kill any grass like quack grass or anything else that might be out there. So if it was my farm, that's probably what I'd do. I'd use a couple quarts of Roundup or something like that, just a very high rate. Make sure we get everything under control. I'd wait a few days, then till it, and you should be in good shape. Uh, Jim asked about 2,4-D. I don't mind 2,4-D. It's just that 2,4-D is not fantastic at killing the roots on alfalfa. It's ironic. I was just talking to a farmer last week about how he had sprayed, I'm going to say three times with 2,4-D and still didn't kill the alfalfa entirely. I mean, that's kind of the way it works, but it burns it down pretty good. The other concern that we have with burning it down with 2,4-D is harm that could potentially be done to wheat. And a lot of people are going to say, well, wait a second. I thought that wheat would handle 2,4-D okay. It handles it okay, but it's still putting a little more stress on that plant early on when we're trying to get it off to a good start. Just like we'll tell you, don't use 2,4-D as a burn down in corn. We don't like 2,4-D as a burn down for wheat either. Now, I'm not saying you can't spray 2,4-D and come back a week or two later till the ground and everything's probably going to be okay. You probably don't have a lot of 2,4-D left, um, but you certainly don't want to go back out a day or two or three days later. So anyway, those are kind of my general suggestions, Jim. Uh, any other thoughts or questions there? No, thank you, Brian. You bet. See ya. All right. Hopefully, God willing, Tuesday. <laughs> yep. Bye. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. All right. Uh, just to wrap things up on the bacterial diseases in corn discussion, the two main ones are Goss's wilt, and like Allison Robertson said, uh, Goss's wilt is the worst one of the two and then there's bacterial leaf streak and her comment was i don't even know if it hurts yield 10 percent." so we're much more concerned obviously about goss's wilt and we've had that on our farm before the the good news i guess with goss's wilt is we've had some really bad years with goss's wilt in certain areas so it helped all corn breeders see which varieties were good on goss's wilt and which ones weren't and quite frankly there were a lot of ones that were pretty susceptible that just didn't make it in their cuts. So in other words, a lot of the varieties on the market, even if they don't tell you it's got tolerance to goss as well, many do. But that's certainly something you can talk to your seed dealer about. The other big thing I'm always going to say is we want your crop to be as healthy as possible so it can tolerate anything that comes its way, whether it's weeds, insects, diseases, wind, you name it. And that means the same stuff we always talk about, having great drainage, having good levels of soil fertility, and you kind of go from there. So anyway, if you do everything else you can to make your crop great, usually then the bacterial disease isn't going to be as bad, but it can still be bad. So if you're in an area where you have concerns about either of these bacterial diseases in corn, just talk to your seed dealer, and I know a lot of seed choices are going to be made here over the next three months or so, so make sure that's near the top of your list, again, if you're in an area where there's a concern. Now, here's the other thing that I want to mention to you. Very often, 
Seed companies sell you one variety of seed, or let's say they sell you three. It gets to spring. They bring out two, and they go, ah, shoot, one didn't make it uh, for germination or whatever. I didn't get the supply and it, whatever else it is. And and this is usually what in, what they end up saying. But I've got this other variety that I think you're going to like just as well. And what I always say to people is, if you were actually going to like that variety just as well, why didn't they talk to you about that variety in the first place? But anyway, the main reason why this gets to be a concern is when it's fall or especially winter and you have lots of time to make decisions and you're thinking about stuff, you got your notes there in the past and you brought up to your seed dealer, hey, I want to make sure I have good to- tolerance to Goss's wilt. And the seed dealer said, you bet, I got three varieties, it'll be great for you. Well, it gets to the last minute in the spring. You're already starting planting. You're in a hurry. You forget about a lot of that stuff. And the seed dealer says, yeah, I got to make this switch. Don't forget about Goss's wilt. It's one of the most important things you need in a seed variety because we don't have other things we can do with it. Where I'm going with this is you might say, well, I got some varieties that are tolerant to gray leaf spot or maybe tar spot or whatever else. Well, you know what? Even if you have a susceptible variety, you can still spray a fungicide because those are fungal diseases. With bacterial diseases, hybrid selection's it. That's your only option for control. So that's why it should, in a lot of cases, be at the top of your list when you're picking corn hybrids. In terms of anything else with bacterial diseases, I would just say, again, you know, we talked a little bit with Allison Robertson about, um, let's say you want to try a little copper, or maybe it's hydrogen peroxide or something like that. We just haven't seen that those things work, so... Like I say one more time, hybrid selection, that's about your only choice. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. Got John calling from Ohio. Hey, John, how are you? I'm good. How are you today? Doing great. What can we do for you? Well, in southeast Ohio, we've got quite a problem with autumn olive. And uh, it's okay. So in hayfields, it's not some. Uh, fence rows, uh, Hey, hey, John. I'll, I'll I'll tell you what. You're you're cutting out on us there. Uh, Janelle, why don't you just talk to him a little bit more? Get me and and maybe if you can get a little more information from him in case we lose him or something. And then I'll get that question answered here in just a little bit. Uh, I'm gonna get back to the Ag PhD mailbag here while we're uh, we're waiting on John. Uh, this one comes in from Jared. He says, "Hi guys. I live in." southern Kansas. I get about 25 inches of rain annually, and I have moderately heavy soils. I'm planning on wheat this fall. Uh, What would you recommend to build the soil levels? I sent you my soil tests. So this field here lays lays good and drains well. Uh, If you farmed it, how would you address long-term fertility? And by the way, we went to the Ag PhD field field day for the first time last month. Loved it. All right, so Jared, I looked at your soil tests. I would just say... I'm missing some data that I'd like to have. Um, So I've got some of the data I need. So we're talking 15 to 20 cation exchange capacity. So that's what we would kind of consider medium to maybe heavy soil. Uh, When I look at base saturation numbers, uh, so like potassium, for example, we're kind of low. And a lot of times down in Kansas, many, many farmers have higher levels of K. And I'm not saying it's like super, super low, but you're 137 parts per million to 180. So if it's me, I'm going to be working on that for sure. 
uh, with your phosphorus levels, you've got a malic 3 reading on phosphorus, and it's in the range of 11 to 17. So the malic 3 test is similar to the strong bray test, uh, the P2 test that a lot of people will run, and that tells you what's available today and what should hopefully come available during the next growing season. Well, if you're down to 11 to 17, that's very low. So you're really low on potassium and you're very low on phosphorus. So those are where my first dollars are probably going to go. But beyond that, I'd just say um, when I'm missing iron, manganese, copper, boron, some of those kind of things, it's I, I don't I, I can't give you maybe necessarily the best answer because I don't have all the data. But those are the first two things that stand out to me. The other thing is one micronutrient you do have on the test is zinc. And it's at 0.7 to 0.8, so it's very low. And a lot of times what we're looking for is a 10 to 1 ratio of phosphorus to zinc. Now, yours, you can probably be a little bit less because you got a Malik 3 phosphorus test and a DTPA zinc test. Most of the time we're trying to be consistent. So if we're going to run a Malik 3 on phosphorus, we run our Malik 3 also on zinc. But nevertheless, it looks like your zinc is real low. So... It, it it really depends on if, and when you ask the question, how would I address this? It does depend a little bit on if I own the ground or if I'm renting the ground. I want to make sure I got a long-term lease if I'm renting the ground because I do want to build it up. And so we're just going to go out. We're going to broadcast fertilizer. We're going to take care of it and build the whole thing up is what I'd probably do. But you could also certainly band and just make sure you're putting plenty out there in a band because your soil is running a little low on a lot of these nutrients. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. From mowing to loading or even moving snow, a John Deere compact utility tractor is ready for any task. During the CNB Summer Blowout event going on now, get yours for zero money down and 0% interest for 84 months. This offer won't last forever, so check out your nearest CNB or learn more at DeerEquipment.com. From machine storage buildings and farm shops to dependable buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit mortonbuildings.com. Are you ready? We got the need, the need for seed treatment. Start your engines. Ready, set, Intego. Start your season strong with Intego Sweet Soybeans, Intego Fungicide Soybeans, and Intego Sweet Cereals OF from Valent USA. Ask your Valent rep about seed treatment solutions or visit valent.com slash Intego. Always read and follow label instructions. Your farm data platform might let you manage your fertilizer plan by helping you set sample points, determine management zones, or create fertilizer recommendations. With Verify, you can do all that. But what Verify does that no one else can is take yield data straight from your combine, correlate this info to soil test points, and immediately generate variable rate fertilizer maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether you want to build soil levels, balance your field for uniform nutrition, or maintain fertility levels by simply applying what you removed at harvest. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Sign up for your Verify account today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. That's V-R-A-F-Y dot com. 
Corn rootworms are called the billion-dollar bug for a reason. If you don't control the adult populations now, their offspring will cost you later. Steward EC Insecticide from FMC offers a unique mode of action that delivers fast and long-lasting residual control of corn rootworm beetles and other tough insects. Choose Steward EC Insecticide from FMC. Always read and follow label directions and precautions for use. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Thanks for listening to Ag PhD Radio today. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. We're going to get right back to the phone lines. Hopefully we got a little better connection now with John calling from Ohio about autumn olive control. So, John, I think I got most of your question. It's how do I control autumn, autumn olive, but where again do you have that autumn olive? And, we, and I think we lost him again. All right, so... Anyway, uh, yeah, okay, so let's just assume, I, I, all right, so pasture is what Janelle says, so it was intermittent there with John. Apologize about that, John, sorry, uh, we're having some connection issues. Okay, so let's talk about this autumn olive real quick. So it's basically uh, like a little bush uh, shrub, and there is a fair amount of this as you go east. I don't, I, I haven't had it that I know of here on our own farm. But typically when we're talking about brush species, these are some of the products that we will mention. And these are the products that we would tell you for autumn olive as well. So it's going to start usually with triclopyr. That'd be something like Remedy Ultra, Vastland, Crossbow. Uh, so usually that's, that's pretty good. And I like that in a lot of cases because it doesn't have lots of residual. The products we used to talk more about, I would say, are Tordon especially, and then Chaparral to some degree. Now, Chaparral probably isn't the best for this particular uh, plant, but Tordon, it's pretty good. So there are a lot of people that will just use something like Grazon, for example, but straight Tordon is usually what I run with. When I've got brush species out there, the problem with that is it's going to last in the soil for years and years and years. So if you're going to plant a broadleaf crop there or right next to there, um, you got to be really careful about using Tordon. Tordon also will kill trees. So anyway, uh, I'm perfectly fine spraying. Oh, and Janelle, uh, my sister Janelle, by the way, is producing the show for, for us today. Uh, she just sent me a note here saying he wants to spray now. Yeah, you can absolutely spray out in your pasture. You can spray ditches. You can spray fence lines. I, I know I heard the word fence line when we were uh, talking to you a little earlier. Um, so if it's me, I'm probably going to use that Remedy Ultra type product or maybe Vastland, something like that. Now, in other situations where it's non-crop and you want to kill everything, there are people who've mixed glyphosate or Roundup together with triclopyr. That a lot of times will work well. Um, 
and you can burn this thing down to some degree with 2,4-D or dicamba, but my experience trying to burn brush down with 2,4-D and dicamba, it's just not real great. I mean, maybe if you get a tremendously high rate, it'll drop the leaves off and stuff, looks like you killed it, and then it comes back eventually. So, yeah, I'm probably going triclopyr. That's what I would suggest, John, and thanks a lot for calling in today. All right. Um, Oh, I want to get back to this question. We were talking about this earlier in the lowering soil pH. So um, as we were going here with our show, John from Minnesota emailed me after our last response there about that question with elemental sulfur lowering uh, pH. And he just said, um, hi, thanks for taking time to answer my question. Um, I guess we're just going to have to try some out. So we also have tried out or we're trying on like 16 acres, a really high rate of potassium just to kind of see what happens there. Uh, And he says one other comment here, or a couple other comments. First of all, he says, we're not at 20 foot spacing. So on that good drainage thing with the sulfur, hopefully our drainage and our tile is sufficient. Um, Yeah, John, all I can tell you is it's got to be really good drainage. You have to have air in that soil. Without air, the elemental sulfur isn't going to work. But uh, my my one big suggestion for you is send us your soil tests. I'd be more than happy to look at those. And then I, I can tell you whether or not I think that elemental sulfur is the right move in this particular case. Anyway, uh, his last comment here is this. He says, I'm sure you're aware of this, but academia pushes us away from using base saturation as a means to measure soil fertility balance, soil fertility balance. As farmers, we just want to know if it's a measurement worth using or not. They say it is some old theory that has never been proven. I think many farmers, many of us farmers are not sure what to think about it. Hopefully our testing will help us learn. Okay, so John, yeah, we've been testing that for 20 years now and base saturation absolutely works. I got all kinds of data I can show you. So we've been comparing yield to soil test on thousands of grid points for the last five years on our farm. And I mean, we've done work with farmers all over the world. So we know the base saturation thing is real. Uh, Let's put it this way. There are ratios in soil that if you get those ratios, it doesn't have to be exact, but approximate, then we found you can maximize yield. So you hear people all the time talk about phosphorus to zinc, for example. Well, we've also found phosphorus to copper is important. And we found that magnesium to potassium is important. So in base saturation, you've got both magnesium and potassium in there. And so rather than having to look at what's your exact magnesium to potassium ratio, you can just get in the general range on the base saturation test. It's going to do you the same thing, basically. But no, base saturation is tremendously important. And again, we have all kinds of data to prove that to you. All right, next question is Alan from Nebraska. He says, we've probably got a month left of soybean growth, but soybean stem borer is starting to wipe fields out. Didn't know if it's too late to spray once we start seeing the adults again or if it will be a waste this late in the season. All right, so Alan, um, whenever you see a bug that can harm your crop long-term, you usually want to wipe it out. So... With Dectus stem borer, which is what I assume we're talking about here, there's an adult beetle. And as soon as you see that, you got to spray because it doesn't take long and they're laying eggs. And those eggs are laid inside the soybean stem. And then the worm hollows out the soybean stem. So any of 
those types of insects, whether we're talking about, uh, let's say it's gall midge in soybeans, it's wheat stem sawfly in wheat, any uh, even European corn borer, once it's inside the stem, oh, you're too late. There's, there's nothing you can do. You can't kill the worm inside there. It just doesn't work. So uh, that's why we're always trying to kill adults. And as another example, I just say adult corn rootworm beetles. When you see them, you got to spray quickly because we just don't want them laying eggs. Once the eggs are laid, there's, there's not a lot you can do to stop it from there. So yeah, if it's me, that's probably what I'm going to do is I'm going to spray. All right. Um, let's see. Next one here is from Ben. He says, uh, hi guys, I'm from Bolivia. Uh, we've started farming corn and soybeans, and I watch you guys, and I I just want to know, we've tested our soil, and I'd really like to send it to you guys. Is that something that you'd take a look at for us? Um, ben, absolutely. Just send us your soil test anytime you want. Now, I will say that sometimes soil test data is a little different from lab to lab, so I'll do the best that I can. Um, obviously, we'd like it tested at the lab we're familiar with, which is Midwest Labs in the United States. But there are many, many good labs out there. So it, I, I just say that'd be my only concern. But yeah, you can email us anytime you want, and we will take a look at your soil tests. All right, next one here is from Peyton. He says, I got a question for you about drying corn. So is a fully automatic remote fan control system just as good as a continuous flow dryer? Peyton, here's the big difference, speed or time. So we've run, well, on our farm here, we've had two continuous flow dryers for, I don't even know, 25, 30 years. I ran the dryers myself every bushel for 20 years straight. And so I can tell you all kinds of stuff about drying grain versus trying to do it with, let's say, fan controls or anything. Well, the fan controls work absolutely it's just we had a lot of grain to move through, and I didn't have the time to wait. So we didn't have enough bins, and that, so I guess that that's one of my things. What we would do a lot of times, especially as we started raising more and more corn, is we would run stuff through the continuous flow dryer, and then we once our bins would start getting full and we'd go, oh, wow, we need more space, well, we can haul it right out. And that was usually in a week or two. Well, in a week or two, you're not going to take um, – corn and get it real dry with automatic bin fan controls. So can you take a little bit of moisture out? Absolutely. Can you take quite a bit out? Yeah, probably. But it it's just the more moisture you have to take out, the longer it's the more time it's going to take. So that's really the biggest difference. But yeah, I love having automatic bin fan controls on our farm. Don't get me wrong. That's great. I love it for storage. Love it for taking a little moisture out or even adding a little moisture back. But uh, it's, it's certainly a little bit different than our continuous flow drying setup. All right, before we go, just wanted to say thanks to my sister Janelle again producing the show for us today. Uh, thanks to everybody who called in today with questions and our guests as well. And thanks to you for listening. And be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.